and so that's what reconstruction deconstructions and reconstructions do it's not just an intellectual exercise but they actually take us places mm. and so i think that that's probably a little bit why people get scared of them wish i had a mansion wish i was dressed up fancy uh, wish i on a pot on so go with the rainbow by the time clancy uh, wish i had no debt maybe then i can't flex Go ahead and run, I'm a check. Wish I had no other same old speed, I'm a check. Wish for my people. Uh, Friends, welcome back to the podcast. My name is Glenn, and you have landed on the one and the only the What If Project podcast, where we explore the question uh, what if there are ways of understanding God and faith and Christianity and spirituality and heaven and hell and LGBTQ and all sorts of things? that are different than the ways in which our traditions have handed us. What if? And right now, we're in the we're nearing the the end of a 12-part series called Women's Voices You Need to Hear. Uh, this is part 11, and it's episode number 94. And today we have the honor of sitting down with one of my favorite writers and uh, thinkers. Her name is Diana Butler-Bass. And what I love about this episode, and I, I say this towards the end, is that about 30 minutes into the discussion, uh, I like put my notes away and we went into a, a direction or we continued in a direction that I, I really didn't anticipate. Um, some podcasters do that like on their podcasts, like they just sit down and have a very real conversation with really no major agenda. And I feel like all of my conversations are real, but I also... I try to do my best to be super prepared because that's just that's just the way that I'm wired. Uh, like for this episode, I read uh, one, two, three, four of Diana's books, and uh, I read a series of articles online about Diana, um, her, her life, etc. And I also listened to some other podcasts that she had been on uh, because I wanted to try to ask her questions that people hadn't really asked her before, and so. I probably put in like a good 40, I don't know, maybe even 50 hours of uh, preparation for this episode alone. But 30 minutes in, I was like, man, I don't know, like the spirit is here. And I don't know, I don't know what the spirit is doing, but let's just follow the spirit and let's let Diana kind of lead the way and see and see where this, where this takes us. And I'm really glad that I, I did because we had a, a beautiful discussion about deconstruction and reconstruction. And I came away feeling very encouraged and um, ministered to by Diana. So so get ready uh, for, for this. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, a few quick things. Patreon.com slash whatifproject is a place where you can go to support the show financially. Uh, what If Project Community is a place where you can go to find other people who maybe are asking the same kind of questions about their faith that you are. It's a closed Facebook group. Um, so go check those things out. What if Project Store is a place where you can go to buy some t-shirts, uh, hoodies, uh, stickers, mugs, hats, blankets, backpacks. It's all there. So go check it out. Uh, Patreon, the community, and the store. All the links will be in the show notes with some links to Diana Butler Bass as well. Uh, special music today is from my friend Young Citizen. Uh, we work together at Apple. He is someone who is a huge voice um, in Charlotte, North Carolina. His lyrics for his songs are thoughtful. Um, his heart is huge. His voice is much needed in our world, um, especially in times like this. So uh, while you are staying home, go download his music, listen to it pass it around, uh, show him some love. And before we go into the episode, uh, what I've been doing for this series is before uh, the episode begins, is reading for you a short piece, uh, maybe from uh, a book that our guest has written, or some piece of, some piece of uh, feminist theology, or some writing from a female voice. And so today I want to read to you a quick excerpt from Diana's book, um, Grounded, which was the first book of hers that I read. Uh, the subtitle is Finding God in the World, A Spiritual Revolution. 
and let me try not to hit the microphone with my book. There we go. This comes from uh, page 122 uh, in a title, uh, in, a, in a section, I should say, that's, sub, that's titled, uh, John, man, I can't talk today. Where where are my words? Uh, the section of the book is titled John 316, and Diana says this, Okay, first of all, I should probably read, I should probably remind you of the verse, right? John 3.16, For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, whoever uh, believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So that's the verse she's talking about here. The word translated world is the Greek term cosmos. John 3.16 is not a call to personal salvation or revivalist fervor. Instead, it offers a glimpse of Christianity's central cosmology. The emphasis is on the first line, and the verse essentially says God so loved the universe that God entered the cosmos in the form of a gift, the gift of Jesus, that we might trust in this divine presence and experience abundance. It is not a story of getting saved from hell, unless that hell is the one that we are making through our destruction of the atmosphere. Rather, it is the Christian way of saying that God dwells in the universe we also inhabit, that we might experience the life of heaven right here and right now. This, my friends, is my conversation with the one and the only Diana Butler Bass. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the What If Project podcast. Uh, today, we are sitting down with one of my favorite authors and teachers, Diana Butler-Bass. So, Diana, welcome to the podcast. It's an honor to talk with you. Well, it is good to finally be with you, Glenn. We've been talking about this for a few months and are making it happen. It took a while to nail it down, but here we are. My crazy schedule. I've been in the midst of uh, writing what will be my 11th book and... Uh, it's been several months of just sheer hard work and re-editing and staying up until two in the morning. <laughs> so, <laughs> so welcome to the glamorous life of a writer. <laughs> yeah, you've got a few balls in the air, just a few. <laughs> so I, I first heard about you, uh, as I mentioned before we hit record, uh, from a, a professor at school who assigned me your book, uh, Grounded, and then that sent me down the uh, wonderful rabbit hole of all of your, all of your books. Uh, because I picked up most of them. I have them actually on my desk in front of me because I've been combing through them, kind of getting ready to talk to you. Uh, but that said, I think I speak for a lot of people because I've talked to a lot of people about your books and uh, they've impacted me. They've impacted a lot of people. So on behalf of all of those people, uh, thank you. Thank you for the work that you do and for the voice that you've had in helping me rethink my faith. Oh, well, you're welcome. Uh, it's an interesting thing that you would say just right there to rethink your faith because in a very real way that's what's in my books mm. it's me rethinking uh the faith mm. and inviting people who want to come on a journey of words with me mm. uh to be on a path where we can encourage one another and imagine the presence of god anew in our lives and in the world so that's mm. So, so if I've helped you and others um, reimagine, rethink, reframe, tell new stories, mm. um, I'm always doing that in my own life. Uh, so I don't see this as a kind of I have all the answers and my readers, you know, I'm just sort of bringing them into some new mystery. Mm. But I'm sharing my, my story um, of faith at this time. And mm. that it resonates with people makes me profoundly grateful and humble. Well, that's beautiful. I think a lot of times when I read a book, you know, it feels sometimes like the author is speaking at me, but in your books, it really feels like you're talking with me in some, some kind of odd way. Like even before I spoke with you just a few moments ago, uh, I felt like I knew you. So your books are very relatable and uh, you, you definitely put your heart in it. So well, thank you. So uh, you're going to be at Wild Goose this year, correct? I am. And I am already signed up, Diana, for the pre-festival um, event that you're going to be leading. I think I signed up like the day that it came out. 
And uh, so I'm excited about that. And I was wondering, can you give us like a sneak peek of what that event's going to be about? Because I've mentioned it uh, to my listeners before on previous episodes, and I thought it would be cool if you could give us a little inside look. Well, it's good. I think the title is uh, Reconstruction After Deconstruction. Yes, Theolo- I believe so. Theology as a Way of Life. And um, one of the things that I, I love uh, about Wild Goose and I've been associated with wild goose really kind of since its beginning. Mm. I was in the very earliest conversations uh, to imagine that we could host such an event in the mm. United States. And then I, I went to the first one and uh, people have told stories about the first wild goose, which was in a, just a dreadful place. <laughs> in, in I love North Carolina, but you don't really want to go there you know, like in July in uh, sort of the Piedmont area when it's hot as can be. Mm. And there were, you know, ticks and snakes. And, yeah. um, oh, it, was, oh dear. it was just horrible. And so I, I said, well, this was a really good idea, but I just can't manage this place. It's horrible. <laughs> and, and a few years later, they, they moved it up to outside of Asheville, which I, I think is a, a much better mm. location. It can still get pretty hot. And, uh, but it's, it's random cold. rainstorms like last year yeah, and lots of rainstorms <laughs> right. and but you're in the mountains and there's that beautiful river right there and so mm. it's a it's a more kind of welcoming i think in environment so, so anyway i've been involved with wild goose for a long time and when i went back which was uh, i think about five maybe six years ago now mm. um i was really surprised at one how large it had gotten Two, the one of the major I think themes of Wild Goose is people who just don't know what to do mm. with with the faith that with which they have been raised, mm. and the vast majority of those people, probably I would say two thirds, are evangelicals of some type or another, um, and the other one third are mostly kind of older mainliners i mm. i think who are questioning their traditions with a big sprinkling of roman catholics um, hmm. in the mix so so the questions at wild goose are are questions about uh, what do i do now yeah you know i no longer believe the same thing that my my parents believed i no longer believe the same thing i was taught at some evangelical college mm. um, i no longer believe what um, I was, I signed up to believe as a pastor. Mm. And, and so I love the community of wild goose and I, and I love being with people who are unafraid, you know, Mm. to, to ask those questions out loud and to go searching, you know, for a community uh, in which to ask them that Mm. feel safe and where they think they might find some answers. Um, so, so that whole sense of, of wild goose and what wild goose is and has become really made me stop and think about my own experience. And I, I turned 60 this last year and my life has actually been a life of constant deconstruction and reconstruction. You know, we didn't call, we didn't call it that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know what I was right. you don't have the terms my, for it then yeah <laughs> right when I was in my 20s um and I I had be, been ra- born and raised in a Methodist family and uh, my sort of earliest experiences of Jesus and the church and theology were all that of liberal Protestantism of the 1960s hmm. and the, the older I've gotten the more I understand how fantastic that was um, as a childhood tradition Mm. and that it gave me enormous numbers of gifts that Mm. I could not have lived my life without. But, um, but, but as I grew up, especially as a teenager, that sort of liberal Methodism of my youth became, uh, it it seemed shallow. Mm. You know, it didn't seem adequate for the 1970s. I wanted a richer and deeper spiritual experience and most Methodist churches in the seventies were not about spirituality. 
And so I turned towards what seemed to be lively piety. And so that was becoming an evangelical. Mm. And so in a sense, the first deconstruction of my life was leaving my childhood faith of liberal Methodism and becoming a member of a Bible church in mm. Scottsdale, Arizona. So it was deconstruction and reconstruction. And my, my parents were furious. I mean, furious at me. You know, um, I remember this one time I came home from this you know, kind of young life type youth group meeting and I, had, I was carrying my Bible and I walked in the door and my mother looked at me and she said, so what are you now, a fundamentalist? Mm. You know, and, and so my experience in some ways was kind of the opposite mm. of a lot of people who go to Wild Goose and who are going through deconstruction times because I had deconstructed what they gave me and mm. I had come out in something they hated. And it was to them threatening and um, scary. And they thought I was checking my brain in some, you know, uh, parking lot somewhere. Mm. And they just kind of were very unhappy. So, but that, I, but I loved it. And I, I, oh my gosh, I was the most faithful teenage church goer. <laughs> that, was, that, <laughs> that was my complete rebellion against my parents was to go to church, Christian rock concerts. And I could still sing all the words to like Larry Norman yep. and all these sorts of things. And so I went to an evangelical college. And again, my parents were we're not happy about that. My parents mm. wanted me to go to Duke or they wanted me to go to a really good women's college. And I had applied to Smith and, and uh, Mount Holyoke and these other places. And, and yet I wound up at an evangelical college. Mm. <laughs> and it was there that I went through a second deconstruction because I realized what I learned in the Bible church over the last four or five years of my life wasn't really the Jesus that you meet in the Bible, mm. despite the fact that it was a Bible church. Yeah. And I began pushing towards a diff different kind of faith. And so with the, the reason I tell you this story is that I think that deconstruction and reconstruction is actually a very long path of a vibrant Christian life. And that it's a practice that we can get better at hmm. as we go through it and then go through it again and then go through it again. Mm. And I don't know what, what I'm on. My fifth. <laughs> fifth round. <laughs> round five. Maybe, maybe six uh, sort of period of this. So, so it, you know, this is a long way of saying what's going to happen at Wild Goose is that I, I got to thinking about how, how really completely practiced I am mm. at reconstruction and deconstruction and, uh, and to introduce that to people at Wild Goose, not as something scary, hmm. but as something normal. Hmm. And, and, and that it's, it's a normal practice of the Christian life to rethink and reimagine and re-engage at ever newer, ever deeper, ever more challenging levels of faith, hmm. you know, who Jesus really is and what Jesus' story really means for the world. Yeah. And, and in order to do that, I invited along a couple of, of very prominent, now very prominent theologians mm. um, who were once students of mine. Mm. Uh, so I invited uh, Jen Harvey, who teaches at Drake University, who is, who is a significant theologian of both LGBTQ mm. uh, theology and liberation and rights. And then she also has, going along with that, um, a profound personal and academic interest in white supremacy mm. and dismantling white supremacy. And then um, Reggie Williams, who teaches at McCormick Seminary, who I think is one of the finest uh, now, uh, ha he's not really an emergent voice in African-American theology. He's a little past that right now. Mm. Uh, he wrote an amazing book. Um, called Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus. He teaches African-American theology and experience at McCormick and is working on a book on the Har Harlem Renaissance. Mm. And so he is a really fine uh, theologian. And 
what I know about both of these people stretches back to the point when I met them both when they were around 20 Hmm. and they were students at the evangelical college where I was then teaching. And uh, Jen comes from a very large family, very large Christian family in Colorado Springs where her, I think that they, her parents had 13 children that they homeschooled. Wow. Yeah. She grew up kind of in the belly of the beast of Mm. evangelicalism. And then Reggie uh, grew up in a, a pretty evangelical kind of Southern Baptist, uh, black even black church um, mm. and environment, and then wound up at an evangelical college, and then went on to Fuller. And what I think is really fascinating about my experience of reconstruction and deconstruction as a practice is that Jen and Reggie both lived it as mm. well, um, and. You know, when you look at a, a woman who is a major queer theologian mm-hmm. <laughs> and a man who is an incredibly important voice in African-American theology, and you know where they began, um, their very lives have been lived in conversation with theology, taking apart what they grew up with and coming to a place where now they are prominent voices for a very different form of faith. And so the the three of us are going to be a wild goose, uh, having a public conversation about that. Wow, that's going to be amazing. Um, a couple of things that you said that stick out to me. Number one is that uh, deconstruction, reconstruction is not. Sometimes I have this feeling in my mind, like, okay, I'm in the deconstructing phase, and now I'm in the reconstructing phase, and then it's going to be over. But to your point, it's like a constant like one season after another season after another season back to this season. I've noticed in my own life that sometimes I can feel like I'm doing both at the same time. Um, I don't know if that's possible, but sometimes it feels like things are coming apart as things are going together. And it's like all this big jumbled, jumbled mess. And for me, the way that it started for me was I had been reading like so many different authors and thinkers for a while. And uh, it all started with Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, because I was raised in a very conservative evangelical world. Uh, fourth through 12th grade private Christian school. Um, Then I went to Bible college, seminary, all those things. And when Rob Bell's book came out and I read it, which I was told not to read it, which probably made me read it more. (laughs) I I picked it up and I, and I read it. I'm like, holy smokes. Like there's a whole nother way to understand all of these things that I've been told all of my life. There's only one way to understand it. And that kind of began to unravel things for me. And I was quietly, I guess, I guess quietly deconstructing things in my heart. And then fast forward many years later, uh, my wife and I had a miscarriage and we were in the hospital. And I remember when the doctor came and told us, you know, what had happened. And in that moment, like all of the, I don't know, quote, truths about God that I've been taught all of my life, all of the easy answers, all of the systematic theology that God is sovereign and this and that, all of that just fell apart. And I remember standing in the hospital, literally thinking to myself, like, this, all of those easy answers don't make any sense anymore. And uh, that's when it kind of all began to come apart for me and kind of sent me into this, this place where I'm at. So I'm looking forward to that session at Wild Goots because uh, I think it's going to help me put some vocabulary maybe on things that I'm experiencing, but don't have the words yet to express. I don't know how many people do think of this process as something that you can, that's a practice. Hmm. Um, you know, it, it might be that you can't kind of conceptualize it that way until you actually have had the experience of going through, going through it several times. Mm. And, and, and I can remember some of the, the, the more, the, the first deconstruction, leaving Methodism and becoming this sort of Bible church evangelicalism, that wasn't very scary. Mm. Um, you know, it felt freeing. Yep. Um, and it felt freeing because I was in a sort of place in my own life as a teenager where you're trying to be free you're, you're you're trying to break away you know from what your parents have told you and you were trying to find who you really are be independent and, yeah yeah independent and you're ready you you know you're you're wanting to launch into adulthood and you know, that's, there's all kinds of rebellions and mm. and things in teenage years and that mine took a religious form 
Uh, nobody who knows me really well has any surprise about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like my husband would probably just be shaking his head. Yeah, of, like, course. of course. <laughs> <laughs> and my daughter too. Naturally, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, I, so the first one was that sense of freedom and I, and I, I'm not sure that I really understood what was happening except mm. that, you know, I was at odds with my parents and I, I did feel alone um, because things that I had known no longer seemed to hold sway. Mm. And so I had to go and figure out new things, you know, new mm. friends, new ways of worshiping, new songs from new hymnals and <laughs> listening to 45 minute sermons for the first time in my life, you know, <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like, Oh, well, you know, whoever knew <laughs> there was such a thing, you know? <laughs> and, um, and so, so that was like, so reconstructions might seem that way for us you know that mm. they're meta they're really what the bible refers to as metanoias these these turnings or these transformations that mm. make all things new mm. um and then there are the metanoias or the the turnings that are the ones like you said um where something happens and you just go wait a second mm. you know this is this is crazy. Mm. You know, this is not what I expected. This is, this hurts. Yeah. And so some reconstructions are associated with deep, deep pain. Mm. And, and I've had those too. Um, the most sort of recent, the, what I would consider to be the major one of my full adult life um, happened in my late thirties. Mm. And it was in that, oh, it wasn't even my late 30s. It was really more in my, around the time I was 32, 33 years old. And um, that one involved losing my job and getting divorced from, mm. my first hus- from my first husband. And boy, I tell you, that was like you just described. Mm. It's, it's almost like being handed... Um, a death of something. And mm. in my case, it was the double death of two dreams. Mm. Um, and one was being a college professor in an evangelical college. And the other dream was, you know, for a wonderful, happy Christian marriage and children. Mm. And they got handed to me on the same plate at the same time. And all of a sudden I was in an apartment by myself uh, with $50,000 worth of school debt hanging over my head with no job and no husband. And I can remember it was Thanksgiving night, had nowhere to go. Mm. Uh, I had no friends left. Um, and I sat down on the floor of this cold apartment and just cried as if the earth was going to open up and swallow me. And, and so that kind of reconstruction, you know, those really catch our attention. Because you wonder, are you ever going to get out of the, the hole? Yeah. And um, I did. I, every book that anyone has ever read uh, that I've written, and it's been 10 books now. Uh, as I mentioned before, I just finished the 11th, but nobody's seen it yet except for me. <laughs> <laughs> but, but everything that's in the world that I put out as words, all of that was birthed that moment on that floor in that Mm. apartment um, in Santa Barbara, California, when I thought that my life was over. Mm. And, and so, so when I finally got kind of through that reconstruction, which did land me uh, around age 40, it took a while. It took almost Mm. a decade. um, I thought, Oh, that's it. You know, and then I was really surprised when something else showed up (laughs) (laughs) another eight or 10 years later. And, um, there were new questions and, and then it wasn't surprising, hmm. you know, then it was, Oh my gosh, we're back here again. <laughs> and, um, and at that point it was more of a choice, hmm. which was fascinating. I'd never really thought the reconstruction could be a choice. It was like, okay, here are all these questions and I can choose to engage them or I could choose not to engage them. Mm. I could simply say, well, no, those aren't really my questions. Mm. And, um, you know, I'm not interested in going down that path. But instead, I decided that I wanted to um, 
engaged us. And so that reconstruction, which I think has been, if, you, if the first book of mine that you read was Grounded, Grounded is a result of that reconstruction. Mm. Was about pursuing questions that I had always been intrigued by, that had always sort of stayed on the edges of my life as a kind of a, a quiet uh, little intriguing puzzle. Mm. Um, something I'd been interested in or privately engaged. And then I thought, you know what? I really want to go. I really want to make those questions more central to my life. And so um, Grounded, which was written in 2013, 2014. So, so I'm in my early 50s while I'm writing that book. Mm. And um, uh, it, it really centers around the question, where is God? And the answer to the question uh, that I pose in the book is, that God is known or God is with us insofar as we are in and with the lives of our neighbors and in and with the life of the, of creation. So mm. nature and neighbor, nature and neighbor are the lo location mm. of divine presence. Mm. So I write this, I write this book and I, I get this call from a friend of mine who I'd known back when I was at the evangelical college and some people listening to this podcast will know this person. Hmm. Uh, his name, his name is <laughs> Phil, Cl Phil Clayton hmm. and Phil, um, he taught, uh, or has, still teaches, uh, at Claremont school of theology. And he's one of the most important process theologians in the hmm. world. And, uh, Phil and I knew each other when we were 18 and 20 years old, um, in an evangelical college. <laughs> and so so phil That's has become funny. yeah one of the world's most important process theologians and i've become me um and um so he, so i get this call from phil and he said oh my gosh he said diana you know i read grounded and he said i always really knew you were a process pan entheist <laughs> <laughs> i saw it in you <laughs> <laughs> but you're always afraid to say it you know yeah. And it was like, I just laughed at him. And I said, you know, Phil, he, he said, when did this great conversion happen? And I said, well, you know, it, it, the only conversion that happened was that I decided to ask the questions in, in public mm. that I had long been engaging in private. Yeah. And, and so, so in that sense, that reconstruction was gentle, but it also took some courage because I knew that there would be people who really liked what I'd written about church uh, mm -hmm. in the decade before Grounded, uh, who would be very upset <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to find out that I really, in my heart of hearts, um, if there's any form of theology that I most nearly, I, I kind of lean in liberationist directions and mm. process theology and panentheism. And those are kind of unpopular threads, you know, of, theology in the and um, a lot of people i've just i just i've discovered that myself <laughs> yes. a lot of people get angry at that at yes them. And, and and so it's like well you know sorry i'm sorry you're angry at my questions but that really mm. does seem to be more your problem than mine yeah hmm. and, and so is so those uh, uh, i know this is kind of long but no it's okay I like this direction, so we'll keep going. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, I think it's an important thing to yeah. think about is that reconstruction isn't just about, you know, facing some horrible thing that you've never wanted to face. You know, mm. the death of a dream, the death of a child, for God's sake. I mean, that's yeah. a terrible thing. It's one of the worst things. Mm. Um, but what reconstruction is, is really, or deconstruction really is, 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 a, is a calling into transformation and it, it can feel scary it can feel jubilant hmm. it can feel courageous it can feel natural um, but that's only because eventually we kind of learn to see when it shows up and when it shows up we know that it's uh, an invitation that's really good. I'm I'm really intrigued by just what you said that you wrote grounded when you were you said in your early fifties. Is that correct? That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I find that really encouraging because, like for me, I'm 38, and so I started this podcast two years ago. And kind of what you had said um, about grounded, like kind of vocalizing, mm 
things that I had been pondering in private for a long time. And sometimes I'm always, I've always been my own worst critic. And so sometimes I get hard on myself in the sense of, man, I'm 38 years old. You know, I've got my master's degree. I just finished up my doctoral degree. And now I'm starting to rethink all these things. Like, you know, and like, I should have started this process a long time ago. I should have been more vocal with what I was thinking inside, you know, five, 10 years ago. So I could be further along than I am now. And so just really encouraging for me to hear from you that that book took place in your early fifties and you just continued that cycle of going in and out of deconstruction, reconstruction. And it's not like something that you've arrived at, so to speak, when you were younger, but it's something that has accompanied you almost on your journey throughout life. So I find that very, very encouraging. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated and I, I don't really understand how it happens. I'm kind of fascinated by people who stop. Mm. Um, because that has not really been my life experience. Hmm. I, th- I think I thought it was going to be my life experience. Uh, as I said, when I, the, the, the big reconstruction out of the death of the two dreams, yeah. uh, that, was, that, that was my 30s. <laughs> hmm. And when I got to a point with that, it, it ended up in the most extraordinary way. Hmm. I mean, what happened was, is that both dreams actually got fulfilled but in ways that i never expected so i wound up in this in a second marriage and my husband and i just celebrated our 23rd uh wedding anniversary Mm. and i also wound up having an amazing daughter um who is graduating from college this year so the the dream of the dead marriage and no children for me became uh and we got married when I was 37 and my daughter was born when I was 38. So, so at the beginning of the decade, it felt like I'd lost everything. And at the end mm. of the decade, <laughs> oh my gosh, what I had dreamed of was right there. Yeah. And it was in a way that was so much more life giving than mm. had it happened when I was in my early thirties. And then the other part of the dream was, was really interesting is that I kept thinking, okay, well, I'll just be a college professor somewhere else. Cause I always, I mean, I, uh, there's still today this little teeny part of me that, that mourns the death of that dream. Because mm. um, I'm not, uh, I, I tried, <laughs> in other <laughs> words, uh, getting typical academic institutional jobs um, mm. for about another 15 years after I lost the first one. And I had some interesting ones and ones that I learned from. And um, yet none of, none of those jobs I ever really loved. And when the call sort of came really deeply to my own heart and through some circumstances, I realized I had to just, just walk out mm. of, of institutional academia mm. and instead have the courage to embrace the dream of being a writer. And that's what I did. Mm. And so it, at, it was right around 40 that the dream of being writer really came to began to open itself as a full-time regular vocational path and so so i i'm still a teacher um because i'm teaching through books and in all the amazing wonderful places that invite me to come and speak which i consider to be such a gift and privilege Mm. i never i never take it for granted it's um, funny how the dream can take like a different shape than you thought it, it would did. right yeah it took, it took a completely different shape so mm. both both of the dreams that i had that i felt like the death of those dreams prompted that really frightening um deconstruction uh but within eight years um I had become they come back into my life in a way that was so glorious and so mm. unpredictable and and so it really demonstrates actually one of the deep truths i think of the christian vision hmm. and that is resurrection is real 
Mm. And um, it happens all the time. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, sometimes people think I don't believe in re the resurrection. Uh, there, there's this group of really nasty Theo bros that follow me on Twitter just to uh. aggravate me. You know? <laughs> Nobody's and, um, like that online. They're all so oh, nice. Oh, right? no. <laughs> They're all so kind. Right. Um, and so, so anyway, they, they, they love taunting me all the time. Oh, oh she doesn't believe in the resurrection. And it's like, uh, every time I see this, well, one, I don't feel like I am any, under any obligation at all to answer ridiculous criticism directed at me by guys who tweet. Um, <laughs> but um, <laughs> what, I, what I do think to myself and my friends laugh at it because, like, I believe not just in a resurrection that happened 2,000 years ago. Anybody mm -hmm. can believe in one single miraculous resurrection that happened so long ago that you don't even have any evidence of it. I mean, that's just what, you know, faith is. Just go ahead, believe that. Yeah. Um, and, but the real thing is, well, do I believe in it today? Mm. You know, do I believe in it right this minute? It, and so I believe in resurrection. Mm. Singular and plural, then and constantly now, you know, as an ever-growing, ever-creative uh, uh, force in the universe, that from death, from the cold, dark, darkness of, of the winter earth hmm. comes new life, period. Yeah. Full stop and and it happens all the time. Hmm. And the problem is is that we don't pay attention to it happening all the time. Instead, especially in churches, all we do is we point back two thousand years ago. And so then you have a whole room full of people saying, That's really nice in their Easter finery, singing great hymns, <laughs> walking out of a church with really good feelings, and then going into a life of utter despair. Yeah. And oh. so if you don't carry through on the experiential ever creative lived reality of resurrection mm. which is what deconstruction and reconstruction really is if you if you don't trust that believe me you just wind up in some grave of your own making mm. and that's why i don't understand people who say i'm going to stop yeah, I've arrived. You know, yeah. yeah, I've arrived. I've found it. This is it. You know what? If you do that, you will find yourself under. Maybe not tomorrow, maybe not next year, but sooner or later, you'll ask yourself the question, how did I get here and why can't I get out? Huh. And it's because you'd stopped. Yeah. You think that you concluded the process when life is never like that. I want to press back on that. I want to press that button a little harder about the, the dead dreams or the dreams that we feel have died. Because while you were talking, um, obviously the, the, our miscarriage that we had was one phase, I guess, of deconstruction. But now that I'm thinking about it as you're talking about seasons of deconstruction, I think back to uh, when, when I went to school and I graduated from seminary, you know, I went on to do what all MDiv students are supposed to do, I guess, you know, we went and pastored a church and I always wanted to do it. And I always was like, felt like I was, you know, wired to do this and built to do this. And I went to do it and I did it for a few years, but I, I got to a point where I, I hated it. Like I enjoyed the teaching. I enjoyed the preaching, meeting with people. I even enjoyed funerals, all those kind of things. But when it came to like the politics of the church, I couldn't stand it. And it just, felt like it got in the way of all the things that I loved. And so I left that behind and I went on to work at Apple. This was 10 years ago and I still work for Apple. And there was a part of me that always felt like that was a dream uh, that had died. And I didn't really see that it would ever or did ever come back to life. And I tried to go back into church settings and you know do the thing again, but I just felt again, consumed by all those feelings of, I just don't want to do this. And it wasn't until I met uh, Bo Sanders, who I mentioned to you before we hit record, and I was telling him my story, and he helped me get this podcast off the ground, and we started an um, uh, online community. We have a closed Facebook group with about 150 people who come in, and they dialogue about their faith and their own deconstruction, reconstruction, their questions, their doubts, and you know, I've met a lot of people at Apple that I, I, I'm really close with, and uh, we've had really deep spiritual conversations, so Bo said to me, he's like, he's like dude, 
the dream might have died in the way that you thought it was supposed to look, but you should look at the way that it's come to life in your podcast, uh, the relationships you have at Apple, uh, the Facebook group that you have. He said, you are being a pastor, but he said in a much different way than you ever thought you would. And he's like, isn't that beautiful that God allowed something in your life to die, but then brought it back to life in this uh, amazing way. And in that time, I came across a Walter Brueggemann quote, and he says something about like the life that you had been so carefully prepared for is being taken away from you by the grace of God. And I feel like I'm in this place now where it just all, the dream is still there and it's very much alive, but it's been resurrected in a much different form. Yeah. I actually, um, when I, my dream of teaching, especially Mm -hmm. being a professor in an evangelical college, uh, when that died (laughs) in in very dramatic fashion, um, (laughs) it was not a quiet little death. Um, so when, when that died, I remember the day that I, I cleaned out my office and, um, because of my Methodist upbringing, you know, I've always been very fond of Wesleyan theology and I, and I am fond of it for a whole bunch of different reasons. I love the fact that it has a bigger place for free will than Mm. Calvinist renderings do. I love the fact that there's a sort of more room to run around with the Holy spirit. Mm. Um, and the idea of experience is so prominent in it. So, so anyway, uh, Wesley, of course, uh, famously was kicked out of churches mm. <laughs> <You know? laughs> in, the, in the 1740s when he started preaching about this, you know, born again experience. And, and uh, eventually, you know, he was a Church of England minister and the Church of England, which is known as the Episcopal Church in the United States. Um, I, I am a member of that church, but I have to tell you, it is really one of the most um, what I would call polity ridden mm. institutions in the world. Yep. Mm. It, it loves its rules. Um, yep. It has a lot of theological flexibility, but it loves its rules. Mm. And so, so anyway, it loved its rules in the 18th century and John Wesley broke them. And so they kicked him out, uh, not of being a church of England minister. He was still a church of England minister, but they wouldn't let him speak in their churches. And so Wesley just said, okay, well, the world is my pulpit. Mm. And so here I, I, this, this day I was packing up my, my office at this evangelical college in Santa Barbara, California. And I was, I was so upset. I was so angry and I didn't mm. know what was going to happen next. And I didn't know how I was going to pay my bills. And the, there was this terrible professor in the office next to me and I could hear him chortling to himself that I, that he had gotten rid of me. I mm. wanted to go over and I would have committed mayhem. There were reasons <laughs> why people should not have guns, you know. And so, um, so I mean, I was so angry at him. And I, I picked as I was packing, I picked up this book, this biography of John Wesley, and I, I, I held it in my hand, and I went, "Oh my gosh, you know." All right, I'm getting kicked out, just like you got kicked out, John. Mm-hmm. And I guess for you, the world became your pulpit, and for me, the world is going to be my classroom. Wow. And so it sounds like that's kind of what happened to you. Yeah. It's kind of that Wesleyan experience. And it's certainly what happened to me mm. is that if you were really called to do something and the institutions that you try to do it in don't like it, um, well, that's their problem. Mm. Um, your issue becomes, where do I follow now? Yeah. Where, where is the call leading now? Mm. And I've known amazing people who have followed calls to places that they did not anticipate. Mm. And, you know, I mean, Brian McLaren, you know, well-known author. Yeah. He started a church and then he began to feel a call, Mm. you know, to something else. And Mm. that call was way less secure than being the pastor of a church. And um, just yesterday, um, which will be about a month, I guess by the yeah, time like that. Yep. everyone's hearing this, <laughs> but um, I was having a coffee with a friend of mine who I knew in California who used to be uh, the, the Dean, which is the senior minister of an Episcopal cathedral, a very prestigious 
kind of position in the Episcopal mm. Church. Um, he's basically my age. And um, five years ago, on a, in a very unexpected way, uh, he wound up at the Burning Man Festival. Mm. Um, and there, his entire life changed. It was, he, he tells the story of how um, it's the first time that he ever was in a community of complete and utter acceptance, mm. of total welcome, of complete hospitality, a community based not on transactionalism, but on the free movement of gifts. Mm. And it was at Burning Man you know, with people in all their craziness and polyamory and running around naked and <laughs> everything else that happens at Burning Man, that he found Jesus in a way that he had never found Jesus before. And what that led to is that he increasingly was uncomfortable being the dean of this prominent Episcopal congregation. And so his life circumstances changed and he stepped out of that. And he's now the pastor of a, the part-time pastor of a teeny tiny, tiny church, less than 40 people in rural Kentucky. And then um, his other real vocation for which he does not get paid is that he runs one of the camps at Burning Man. And the camp that he runs at Burning Man is called Religious AF. Um, and um and I'm not naughty about Swepper, so I can't really say it. <laughs> it's not going to work for you. <laughs> I know, it's, 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 once in a while I swear and everybody goes, oh. Oh, no. <laughs> you know, it's really upset. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but, my, but my friend runs the, the, the religious AF camp. And um, they create for, you know, nine days out on the, de the, the desert every year, essentially a monastery. Hmm. And people come and they join in the life of this monastery. And he has sort of functionally become uh, the, the priest of Burning Man. Hmm. And the people who are the people who, are, who build the temple every year. Wow. Um, my friend is invited to be uh, one of the lead liturgists hmm. in the whole liturgies of the temple, which involve a lot of lament and repentance and letting go of guilt and, and other beautiful things uh, that are so deeply and profoundly biblical. Hmm. And, and so here's my friend. I mean, literally, he had this moment, you know, <laughs> where his, his whole vision of himself and Jesus, everything he had ever hoped that Jesus was, that he had found in some measure in the church. He did not hate the church. He did not hate his church job. He did not hate being the dean of this cathedral. Mm. But he encountered it in such a, a surprising mm. and, power, and powerful incarnated way in the deserts of Nevada with people he never anticipated would introduce him to such. It, it, it caused him to do this same thing, you know, yeah. it's like, okay, well, I guess Burning Man is now my church. Yeah. You know? It's like the world is my classroom. The world is my church. The world is my pulpit. It's hmm. just the same. But, um, you know, for him, the Burning Man is my community. Yeah. And so that's what reconstruction, deconstructions and reconstructions do. It's not just an intellectual exercise but they actually take us places. Mm. And so I think that that's probably a little bit why people get scared of them is yeah. because, you know, Hey, you might wind up stepping out of your church like Brian McLaren and, uh, or you might wind up not having an academic job like me, or you might yeah. wind up like my friend, uh, Brian and uh, he's another Brian. His name is mm. Brian Baker. Okay. By the way, if anybody's yeah. interested in the burning man priest, mm. um, uh, you know, you might wind up, uh, you know, giving away gifts for free mm. and living off of faith after you've had a really nice salary 
Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, security. A, yeah. <laughs> yeah. At an Episcopal, a very well off Episcopal church. And, and, and the dream job. I mean, so mm. many people go in the ministry, especially in, my, in, in the Episcopal church. That's the dream, you know, mm. is to become the dean of a cathedral. Um, and so, so, you know, you, do, you don't know mm. what's going to happen. And there are challenges. You know, people always think, oh, well, you know, literally some of the, the Theo bros um, on, on Twitter when they are busy taking me down uh, dragging me on the resurrection also <laughs> will say things like, you know, Oh, well, you know, this is easy to say from the safety of being a famous author. Well, you know, that's not true. Do you know what mm. fam famous authors have no salaries Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know? and they have no health insurance yeah. and we have no pension plans. Yeah. Um, uh, being an author, being an artist, being a podcaster, being a, a, a burning man priest, you know, yep. um, these are acts of faith Big um, time. Yeah. that merge out of hearing a call and following it. Mm. And, um, you know, I sometimes think, well, what else could I have done? You yeah. Know, would I have stopped? Yeah. Does it feel very good in the moment when it's happening? But when you look back on it, like I look back on the church and I say, thank God that that happened and I'm here. It didn't feel very good at the time, but it feels very good in some ways now. Yeah. And that's, um, I actually write a story like that um, in the the last published book that I had was called Grateful. Mm -hmm. And it's about gratitude as one of the most significant human spiritual practices mm. um, that both links us to our particular stories. And I talk about it a lot in a Christian voice in the book, um, but it also links us into more universal stories um, mm. about gift, gift giving and justice and making community and things that are really, really important. Right. Mm. Um, and so in that book, I, I actually tell the story about that early deconstruction, the one that happened when I was in my thirties and the death of both dreams. And uh, the president of the college called me in and said that the college was not going to renew my contract. And, um, I, you know, I, I looked at him and he could tell that I was just terrified. You know, mm. what a thing for, what a thing for a man who's in his late fifties to have to turn around and tell a woman who's newly divorced in her early thirties you know, Hey, I'm sorry. We're throwing you out to the wolves. Yeah. <laughs> you know? he, he, he was not happy with this. Yeah. Um, and uh, so he was acting at the behest of other forces, mm. which I, I now understand better, but the, so, so, so he tells me this and he, he, I could feel this level of sympathy, you know, while he was looking at me and he said, I just want to tell you one day you're going to look back on this and you're going to thank me. And at the moment, I was so angry at him because, you know. I just want to throw you, you off a mountain. <laughs> I, don't want to write. Oh, that, I think that's an exact line. I think that's exactly that. what you said, is I want to throw you <laughs> off a cliff or something like that. Yeah, I, yeah, and, and, and this college is in California, so there were handy cliffs, you know, right. that I could have tossed him off of. And, and so, um, you know, I was, I, was, I was angry. And mm. it was like, you know, what gives you the right to say that? And it, the truth of the matter is, is that we never have the right to say that to another person. Mm. That, that's always, there's always a level of cruelty attached to that comment yeah, in, for sure. in the initial moment. And there must be some other way to comfort somebody. <laughs> <laughs> and I wish he would have found that other way. Mm. But the, what I discovered in the longer term is that he was right. Mm. It, it took a really long time. Uh, for me to arrive at the place where I understood that he was telling me that day mm. and he shouldn't have said it the way that he did say it, but nevertheless, he was correct. And um, I do look at that, that time and, and the actions that the institution carried out against me, there is never an excuse for injustice for any sort of injustice. Mm. So even if you can look at somebody and say, one day you're going to thank me for this, you know, that's like saying to the person who you're sending to jail, you know, one day you're going to thank me for this. Right. Um, you know, but in the meantime, the person is brokenhearted and mm. doesn't quite understand how their life got them to this point and they need something entirely different. Mm. Um, and so 
you know, so, so, you, so we should never use future gratitude as a justification for doing the wrong thing mm-hmm. or for treating people poorly, even if it's a result of consequences mm-hmm. of their own actions. But nevertheless, you know, he, he was in effect right, is that I can look back now and say, yeah, you know, that changed everything. And without that particular change, none of these other things would have occurred. Mm. And I am certainly grateful for all of these other things. It's mm. really good. And, and so, so I think that that's, you know, that's part of this process is, is gratitude, but that gratitude doesn't show up um, in the moment. Mm. Um, instead, it really has to be a sort of result or a response of the journey out of uh, of the journey that comes from the 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 moment of that metanoia, you mm-hmm. know, uh, of being turned out or turning yourself in a new direction or however that turning happens, um, then you walk a new way. And eventually, as you walk that new way, things begin to change, and you see the good of the change. And you know, it's really hard, but the good of the change in my life has outweighed what I lost. Mm. And, uh, you know, it would have been nice to still have a college account of the TIA craft or not be worried about health insurance when I'm 60. Mm. Uh, You know, those are things that were lost Mm. and those are big things and they're important things and they get more important as you get older. Mm. Um, But then I wouldn't be talking to you we would not be having this conversation if my life had stayed as it was. And I wouldn't be and, having it either if mine had stayed the way it was. <laughs> yeah, and the, yeah. And, the truth, and the truth of it is, is that this moment for whatever its challenges, whatever the fears are that lie outside of this good conversation, um, this moment, these words, these insights are unique and beautiful and are gifts and are charged with the, with the, the, the spirit of God. Hmm. And it wouldn't exist if not for the stuff that brought us to this moment. Amen. Well, Diana, I pushed my notes away about 30 minutes ago because I had my (laughs) list of questions and I'm really glad that I did because um, I needed this conversation for my own life. And I imagine that uh, some of our listeners will find it very beneficial as well. Um, I feel like I've made a new friend. So thank you. For, uh, well, I look forward to seeing you in North Carolina. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, you're going to be here, I guess, in a month from now. It'll be obviously not a couple weeks from now, but uh, I know you're going to be here. So I'm going to try to make it to that, uh, to that uh, church you're going to be at. Maybe we can connect. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I hope that, you know, some people might make a pilgrimage to wild goose and yeah uh you know be able to uh hear the glorious stories oh my gosh Um, (laughs) really jen and reggie to me uh, my plan is to kind of sit back frame up a conversation and let these two amazing human beings uh run with it they're such intelligent uh just spiritually deep uh profoundly committed prophetic justice people that I can't, I burst at the seams thinking, I mean, and that's the other good thing is that here we went through this really kooky, horrible experience all these years ago when I lost my job and that not only shaped me, but it shaped them Mm. because they were my students at that moment. And, and one of the things that, uh, both of them have said to me over the years, and they're not the the only former students I have had who've said, such is that my ability at the moment to be brave Mm. and to to be uh persistent Mm. uh remained with them Mm. as an example of how christian people should behave in the midst of the worst of circumstances and so so even my pain at the death of my own dreams spoke to people in such a way that it embodied in some small beautiful way 
Hmm. to inspire courage in these two students who have gone on and I am in awe of their work. Their work has now taught me wow. uh, things about genuine inclusion, hmm. about what it really means to be community. And um, you know, part of my call, I think, in recent years is to really grapple with these things that many of us are grappling with about white supremacy, about race, hmm. about our histories. and. And now my students became my teachers. Um, and I think that is part of a life of deconstruction and reconstruction. Yeah. I'm excited to be brought into that circle uh, at Wild Goose. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Thanks so much, Glenn. This has been a great moment for you just to open this path. And I don't get to talk about this very often. So I hope that whatever gifts have been in this moment for us um, will be shared with anyone who needs them. Oh, there are there are many. So thank you so much, Diana. You're welcome. You have a wonderful day. You too. Wish I had a mansion. Wish I was dressed in something fancy. Wish I on a pot on some gold with the rainbow by the Clancy. Wish I had no debt. Maybe then I can't flex. Go ahead and run, I'ma check. Wish I had no other sand, most beat, I'ma chest. Wishing for my people. Uh. Wish I had more better leaders. Have enough to make our own land. Name my own beach and we bring our own sand. Where we live is so bland. So I much wish. we're high on demand. Tiptoe around through and high lows. Feel like James I Brown, love, we go ahead and dance. Let me talk. At the end of the day, we know who's at a fault. We got our hands up, ready for a box. Undisputed, got the own lock. Champion. Go ahead, call the ambulance. I so wish. we said our own ambience. Dub TTG train to go. I Let's wish. talk, no rambling. Wishing I had something foreign. Wishing I had something foreign. Knowing that I can afford it. Knowing that I can afford it. It's real love, it's real love. But I just ignore it. It's all love, it's all love. But I just ignore it. Wishing I had something foreign. Wishing I had something foreign. Wish I had red bottles on my feet, everything falls on me. Then I start clicking my heels to the ride, it is beat neat. Everyone to follow my speed. Let's close those motifs. Carry a lot of rows on freeze. Wishing I could fly to the keys. That will be more free. Something in my mind hit the dough. Put on my fresh fit. Uh. So, Sir Charles, let's go. We about to go and get it. Uh, let me talk. At the end of the day, we know who's at a fault. We got our hands up, ready for box. Undisputed, got the own lot. Champions. Wishing I had something foreign. Wishing I had something foreign. Knowing that I can afford it. Knowing that I can afford it. It's real love. It's real love. But I just ignore it. It's all love. It's all love. But I just ignore it. Wishing I had something foreign, wishing I had something foreign. Knowing that I can afford it, knowing that I can afford it. It's real love, it's real love, but I just ignore it. It's all love, it's all love, but I just ignore it.